All right. If you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. This is a familiar story. Um, This is a story, I'm guessing everyone in this room uh, has some level of familiarity with. So what we're going to do is we're going to read it, uh, we're going to thank God, we're going to pray that God will give us fresh eyes uh, to see it anew this morning. Uh, So let's read this passage together. This is Genesis 3, the entire chapter. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, And above all the beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children." Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, 
and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There's a lot there. Uh, This is God's word for us this morning. Advent is a season of waiting and longing. It is a season of waiting and longing for sin and evil and death to be finished, to be undone. It is a season of hoping that God will act to set things right. In the Advent season, we are longing for good news. We are longing for the gospel. And so as we begin thinking over the next few weeks about what it is we are longing for, we're going to start with Genesis 3. Because in Genesis 3, God is telling us what has gone wrong with the world. This is it. This is why the world is the way it is. This is why the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And so as we look at this passage together, we're going to look kind of at two broad themes, uh, and there's kind of sub-themes through each one, but we're going to look at the shape of sin, we're going to think about what sin is, and we're going to look at the shape of hope. So, the shape of sin. We're going to think about what sin is, what sin does, and how we should think about sin in the world and in our own lives and heart. You see what sin is as the story here unfolds. Sin begins with a false picture of God. It begins with a false understanding of who God is and what he is like. Think of how the story opens. Adam and Eve live in a freshly created world. A world that is teeming with life and is embarrassingly abundant. Everything they have is a gift they have received from a generous God. But Satan comes, and Satan begins his temptation by calling the character of God into question. You see it there in verse 1. Satan says to Eve, did God really say you can't eat any of this stuff? Satan casts God as stingy and insecure. Eve responds and she argues back with Satan, but she also concedes some of the ground. She says, no, 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 we can eat everything except for that one tree, and also we're not allowed to touch it because we might die. Now, God had not told them that they weren't allowed to touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She is conceding some of the ground to the serpent. But the serpent answers back in verse 5. He says, God is just worried that you will be like him if you eat of this tree, that you'll have more power, that you'll have more knowledge, that you'll be too much like him. He is threatened by you eating this tree. Satan is really casting God here as sort of a jealous and insecure middle school boyfriend uh, who's constantly worried that his girl is talking to other people 
God is not insecure, but that is how Satan is presenting him. But even in these verses, we don't just have a false picture of who God is. We have a false promise to ourselves. Verse 5 really is the heart of the entire matter, that if they eat of the tree, they will be like God. That's the, that's the hook. That's the thing that got Eve and Adam, that they would be like God if they ate this fruit, that they would be wise and self-sufficient, that they wouldn't need anyone or anything. And friends, at the heart of sin is functionally this idea that we can be in charge, that we can be our own gods, that we can be in our own minds, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, that we can run our lives. To be like God is the heart of sin. And this heart ultimately manifests in just open rebellion against God. You see it there in verse 6. Eve eats, gives some fruit to Adam. He also eats. The false picture of God, the false promise to self, leads us ultimately to throw off the loving limits and constraints that God has given and to go our own way, to live lives of self-determination. One theologian captures this well uh, in an image that the children have already considered uh, when he says this, He says, when you're swimming in a tiny above-ground pool at your cousin's house and keep bumping up against the walls, you start wishing they weren't there. But when, in your rambunctiousness, you succeed in knocking them down, you realize the pool didn't get bigger, it just disappeared. The result of throwing off the limits that God has given, of rebelling against the rules that God has given, is not increased freedom, but is catastrophe. And you see that as the rest of the passage begins to show us what sin does. You see it uh, in verses 7 and 8. In the first sin, shame entered the world. Shame entered the world. Adam and Eve hid first from one another. They realized they were naked and they made clothes for themselves out of fig leaves. And then when they heard God coming, they hid from God, which is pointless as we know, but they were afraid to be near God. They were ashamed of what they had done. Shame and alienation entered the world through sin. Anytime we experience those things, shame and alienation, it is because of sin. One of my favorite singer-songwriter captures this alienation well uh, in one of his songs. He says, a heart on the run keeps a hand on a gun. You can't trust anyone. That's it. A heart on the run keeps a hand on the gun. You can't trust anyone. Shame and alienation come from sin. But more than that, happens because sin enters the world. In the first sin, we see also a desire to justify ourselves enters the world. As God begins talking to Adam and Eve, they begin blame-shifting like they are practiced experts at it. Uh, Look at Adam. He says, "Uh, Lord, it's not my fault. Uh, The woman did it. And actually, if you remember, you gave her to me, so really you did it. That is staggering 
what Adam says to God there, is it not? God, uh, he, he is blaming God for his own sin and rebellion. He's trying to justify himself. So God looks at Eve and he says, what have you done? She goes, hey, the snake, the snake did it. Uh, it's just blame shifting. This desire to justify ourselves is in the world and in our hearts because of sin. And ultimately, as you read the rest of the chapter, what we realize is that all of the brokenness in the world is here because of sin. You see it in verses 17 to 19, the curse that God gives to Adam because of his sin. He says, Adam, because of your sin, the relationship between you and me is broken. But not only that relationship, the relationship between you and your wife, you and other people, you and yourself, and you and the world is broken. Every relationship in the world is broken at some level because of sin. And this is why it's helpful to just kind of say in bold print and underline four times, sin has only the capacity to destroy. That is the only thing sin can do. Sin never brings life. Sin never brings goodness or flourishing. It has only the capacity to corrupt and destroy because sin cuts us off from the source of life himself. It leads only to death. And so that's why I think it's helpful for us to think about how we're going to think about sin. Because we live in a world where the highest good, the thing that everyone wants to do, is the freedom to be themselves. We want to be ourselves. We want to be authentic. We want to be true to ourselves. We want to determine our own way. We want to walk our own path. We want to throw off all of our constraints and be true to ourselves. This is the plot of every Disney movie. Be true to yourself. But sin is addiction. I think for me, that's the most helpful way to think about how sin functions in our lives and in our hearts. Sin is addiction. Sin is compulsive behavior that arises from distorted desires and loves. Sin is not freedom, but sin is a prison of our own making. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous uh, has a great saying that is true of sin in a profound sense, and that is, your own best thinking got you here. Your own best thinking got you here. We are enslaved to evil desires. Our own best thinking got us here. Our true selves got us here. And now we're addicted to sin. Our hearts are twisted, we love the wrong things, and we're addicted to sin. What hope does an addict have? Well, the good news is, is that throughout this passage, we get a few hints of hope. It's not all hopeless because of sin. So let's think about the shape of hope here in Genesis chapter 3. The first hint of hope we get is in verse 9. God comes looking for hiding and ashamed sinners. Don't miss that point. God comes looking. 
Friends, there is no freedom in hiding from sin. There is no freedom in burying sin deep within your heart and pretending that it's not there. There is only freedom in being found. And there is something profoundly hopeful about the fact God knows full well what they've done. And he comes looking for them. God wants to dwell with his people. Uh, Another hint of hope we get here. You see it in verse 9. You see it in verse 11. You see it in verse 13. God asks questions. Think about that. The all-knowing God asks questions to human beings. God does not lack information. He's not asking questions because he doesn't know the answers. God is asking questions because he is interested in shaping the hearts of his people. God is asking Adam what he's done so that Adam can see it, so that Adam can face it, so that Adam can say it. You see, friends, the gospel is only good news when we come face to face with the reality and the depth of our sin. Adam has to say it so that he can see it and experience, even there, the goodness of God. A third hint of hope here, there's five of these and they're relatively quick. The third hint of hope we get in Genesis 3 comes in verse 21. God clothes the naked. Think about that. He provides for Adam and Eve. They're not cut off. God gives them clothes. He helps them on their way. He does not give them the freedom they wanted. They wanted to be free of God. God doesn't let them do it. He clothes the naked. He provides for them. There is hope there. There's also hope in verses 22 to 24 when God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden. And it says he does that lest they eat the tree of life and live forever. God recognizes that for Adam and Eve to live forever in this state of sin and misery is not good, is not grace, would be profoundly unloving of God to let them remain in that state for all of eternity. And so God removes them from the garden. He removes them from their access to the tree of life. More than that, it's a reminder that sinful people cannot dwell with a holy God. In that condition, in that state, God's holiness would be dangerous to Adam and to Eve. There's a final point here, uh, a final place where we see, I think, great hope. And we're going to spend the rest of our time together thinking about this. But you see it in verse 15. God makes a promise. God makes a promise. Sometimes we miss this promise because it's buried in the consequences of sin. Uh, Even more than that, it is buried in the consequences of sin that God is giving to the serpent. Uh, But this promise is so deep and is so profound that theologians call it the proto-evangelion, the first gospel. The first gospel is right here in this passage in verse 15. Look at what it says. God says to the serpent, uh, 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Some translations say he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's two things buried in that promise that we will look at briefly this morning. One is enmity. Enmity is not a word we use a whole lot. Uh, I bet that y'all went this whole week without using the word enmity. Uh, if I'm wrong, please let me know, because if y'all are using that word, maybe, maybe I should use it more. Uh, but enmity simply means conflict. It means hatred. It means dislike. And so part of the promise that God is making here to Adam and to Eve and to the serpent is that God will put enmity, he will put conflict, hatred, and dislike between the serpent and the woman. This is grace. It is grace that God puts hatred between the serpent and the woman. Because if he doesn't, otherwise there is nothing but hopeless bondage. Uh, One of my favorite uh, theological quotes I've given probably already like 10 times here. I'm going to give it to you a thousand more because it's so helpful. Uh, This theologian says, what the heart desires, the will chooses and the mind justifies. Think about that. What the heart desires, the will chooses and the mind justifies. What that means is what you love is what you choose to do, is what you intellectually rationalize to yourself. So if you love the wrong things, you are going to rationalize the wrong things. You're going to choose the wrong things. This is why it is grace that God puts enmity, puts hatred and conflict between the woman and the serpent. Because what Adam and Eve just did in Genesis 3 is throw their lot in with Satan. They said, I like what that guy is selling. If we love evil, we have no hope. God is uh, promising enmity because he is reminding us that at the root of what we need here is new hearts. Because we now love the wrong things. We have distorted loves and desires. And so this promise of enmity is a promise that God is making to us to break the chains of addiction. If sin is addiction, God is promising an enmity that sin will be bitter and unpleasant and evil to us. Again, that is grace. It is grace that we experience sin and its effects as bitter and unpleasant. It is grace that we experience the effects of sin as something we hate that we hate the brokenness that we see in the world. This is why sin is never life-giving. In the language of addiction and recovery, people talk about how addicts are always chasing their first high. They're always chasing the feeling that they had the first time they used a substance. And they have a, lang- they have a term for that. They call it chasing the dragon which is so profound on so many different levels. Because sin never brings what it promises. Sin never brings the freedom that it acts like it can provide. 
And as you fall deeper and deeper into sin, it promises more and more and delivers less and less. And again, friends, that is grace. Because if sin delivered on its promises, we would be hopeless. We would have nothing. We would have no hope. God's promise of enmity is God's grace to us. Hating sin is grace. One Puritan comments that until sin is bitter, Christ cannot be sweet. That the bitterness of sin prepares us for the truth of the gospel. And in fact, that leads us to the second part of the promise that we have here in Genesis 3, 15. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Other translations, instead of offspring, say seed. Between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Uh, No matter what your Bible says there, the point is that God is making a promise of a person. A person who will be in conflict with Satan. And not only will be in conflict, but will strike Satan on the head while being wounded in the process. The rest of the Old Testament, the entirety of your Bible from Genesis 3.15 to Malachi 4, is really about who is the seed. Who is the seed of the woman? Who is the one who's going to fight the serpent and be wounded? And what this passage is doing is it is preparing us to think about that question during this Advent season. Because what the rest of the Bible shows us is that we need someone who will declare God's will to us. We need a prophet. We need someone who will teach us truly about God, who will fix our faulty understandings, who will change our hearts and break our addictions. But we also need someone who can make atonement for us. We need a priest Someone who can restore us to God, who can undo the damage that has been done by sin so that sinful people can again dwell with the holy God. But more than that, we need someone to rule and protect and defend us. We need a king. We need someone who will defeat our enemies, who will lead us into flourishing, someone to fight for us and to crush the head of the serpent who will be wounded on our behalf. And friends, I hope you can see where I'm going, but that's Jesus, right? Jesus is the prophet that we need. Jesus is the priest that we need. Jesus is the king that we need. One theologian says the Old Testament is a long story in search of an ending. And that ending is Jesus. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be thinking about how Jesus is our prophet. How Jesus is our priest. How Jesus is our king. And ultimately, how Jesus fulfills the promise that God makes here in Genesis 3.15. A promise that ultimately redeems us from sin and death itself. It's good news. Would you pray with me?
Father, we come to you this morning as those who experience sin and its effects more than we know and more than we wish we did. Father, we pray that you would show us our hearts, that you would show us where our addiction to self, our addiction to sin is leading us into patterns uh, where we don't understand rightly who you are, where we don't understand rightly who we are, where we rebel against what you have told us is for our good. Father, teach us to hate sin. Make our experience of sin bitter and unpleasant. Show us how our sin doesn't bring life. But Father, in the midst of that, remind us that you have dealt with sin. Once and for all, in the person and work of your son, Jesus. Anchor us in his work on our behalf. And Father, even now as we come to the table, we pray that you would be at work in us, that you would shape us, that you would use this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup for an extraordinary purpose, to root us in the gospel of Jesus. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.